Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine, sponsored by the Dow Health. I am Elizabeth Cullen. And I am Georgia Payton. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. Welcome back to season two, episode nine. We have a very special guest today, midwife M. M has been a registered midwife since 2013 in New South Wales. She has worked across multiple different hospitals, including two major tertiary level hospitals. She's predominantly worked in a postnatal setting caring for women and families, both in the hospital and in the community and is the host of Welcome to the Womb, a podcast for women and families wanting to know more about pregnancy, birth, babies, and postpartum. Her Instagram is midwife underscore M, a page aimed at providing free and accessible information for women and families. And she's also currently pregnant with her own first baby due later this year. So exciting. Welcome, Em. It's so lovely to have you. I'm so excited to chat to you guys. Honestly, you guys are just the best. (laughs) Thank you for being here today, Em. So good. My pleasure. So we'll start today. Um, So a woman and a couple see that positive pregnancy test. Now what? What are the next steps in their pregnancy journey? I guess if we're speaking, are we speaking in regards to care, like who they're going to see for their care next? Yeah, or the next steps of what should they do? Yeah. Okay, the first thing, if you've taken a home pregnant test, so you've peed on a stick, it's come back positive, um, you kind of just want to confirm that that is correct. And the first step is by going to your GP. Don't stress if you don't have a regular GP. If you don't, you can just go to a medical centre. That's fine. And also something I want to stress is you don't need to rush to get there. I think a lot of women think, oh, my gosh, like, what do I do next? And they rush to see their GP. You've got time, particularly if you found out quite early that you're pregnant and you've been actively trying for that pregnancy. But ducking to see a GP and usually what they'll do is they'll send you for a blood test, which will check for something called beta HCG in your bloodstream. And that is a hormone that is generally released by your placenta. And so once that blood result is back, they'll call you back in, they'll check your levels, they'll make sure that they're at an appropriate level for what we call um, the gestation that you're at, so how far along in pregnancy you're at. And then from there, once the pregnancy is confirmed, they'll send you for a few other blood tests and scans and whatnot. Amazing. Okay. And so then um, what are a woman's options for her pregnancy care? Oh, my goodness. There are so many options here in Australia. (laughs) Um, I'll go through them as quickly as I can because I'm not trying to plug my own podcast here. I've done a whole one hour long episode on this. So if people want to know more and want to know how to figure out which option is best for them, they can go have a listen to that. But we might just break it into public and private. That's probably the easiest way to look at it. 
So for public care, that is what is covered by Medicare. So generally speaking, you won't be out of pocket any costs. Um, the things that you will still be paying for are certain blood tests or scans or other tests that you may be sent for, but your general care, you're not going to get charged for. So within that public realm, one of the first options that your GP will offer you, and generally speaking, Speaking, your GP should be going through these options with you at the start of your pregnancy. Um, but one of those first options is something known as GP shared care. And that is where a woman and family will go and see their GP for the majority of their care during their pregnancy. That care we call your antenatal care. So the antenatal period is when you're pregnant. So they'll do that antenatal care with you as long as they are qualified to do so, because GPs have to do a little bit of extra training to be able to provide that care. Yeah. And then towards the end of pregnancy, you'll go and be linked in with your public hospital for the rest of your care um, towards the end of pregnancy. If you're not wanting to go down that route, there are lots of clinic options. And this is probably the option that most women and families access in Australia because it is the most readily available and it is the most accessible. And generally speaking, you'll either go into a midwives clinic there where you'll see midwives and for those out there that don't know what a midwife is, they pretty much specialise in, you know, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and have a real focus and knowledge in the normal and are very good at managing low risk to medium level risk pregnancies. Um, so you might see midwives at that clinic. If you're in a higher risk category, you may be sent to a doctor's clinic. One of the key things to know about these options are that you will probably just see whatever midwife or doctor is available in the hospital at the time. You're not guaranteed to see the same doctor or midwife. Within that clinic setting, there can also be specialist clinics. So things like gestational diabetes clinics, high blood pressure clinics, um, women that have particular social needs, there might be clinics dedicated to them. So there's lots and lots of options there. And one of the bigger, more popular options, I suppose, lately within that public umbrella is something called MGP, which is known as midwifery group practice, which is where you'll be allocated to see one particular midwife or a small team of midwives throughout your pregnancy. They'll be there at your labor, at your birth, and then they'll follow up with you at home for up to six weeks in the postnatal period, which is that period after you have your baby. Um, this is considered what we call the gold standard of care, which is backed up by evidence. The only problem is, is that um, spots are really limited and it's very hard to get onto this program. Um, there are similar programs. There's one called MAPS as well, where you might see the same midwife throughout your pregnancy, not necessarily at your birth um, or labour, but they'll follow up with you again postnatally. There are birth centre options. There's lots of different options, but they're kind of like your basics under the public umbrella. And then if you wanted to go down the private route, your only real option in that regard is to go with a private obstetrician. And an obstetrician is a uh, doctor that specialises in pregnancy, birth, postpartum. And they have probably more of a medical focus because they are doctors. Um, so the one of the key there's lots of differences, but one of the key differences there is that you will be out of pocket um, with that care because it is the private option. Um, but again, your doctor will see you throughout your whole pregnancy for your care. They'll be at your birth. They probably won't be at your labour. That's just something to note because I think a lot of women get caught out by that. 
um, and then they'll follow up with you postnatally as well. And then the final option, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> is um, uh, hiring a private midwife and they generally will see you in your home. That care isn't through the hospital system and most women seek out that option um, because they want to have a home birth. That's a real snapshot of what's available. Great summary. <laughs> Sorry, that took a long time. And um, if someone wants a private midwife, can they still birth in a hospital or do they have to have a home birth? They can birth in a hospital, but generally speaking, you your private midwife will not be what's known as your, um, they won't be your primary care provider once you transfer into a hospital. Okay. So there are some arrangements in Australia, not many, where midwives will have what's called like visiting rights at certain hospitals, private midwives. And yeah. so if their woman gets transferred, they can go and continue to be a primary care provider. But most, in most cases, the midwife can go with them as a support person, but that woman's care almost then gets handed over to the hospital. But it is absolutely an option and that happens. Like it's not uncommon for that to happen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then um, if we take it step by step throughout the pregnancy, when what are the tests that and scans that are done during the first trimester? And are these tests and scans optional? I love the last part of that question because <laughs> every scan or test, anything under the sun that comes with pregnancy is optional. Always, always, always optional. Excuse me. Things might be strongly recommended but it's always a woman and a family's choice to say yes or no. So everything is optional. Um, in regards to first trimester, that we usually say that's between week one and week 12-ish of pregnancy. So say you've gone to your GP, you've had your pregnancy confirmed with that blood test. The next test, generally speaking, that they'll offer you is a heap of blood tests. And these are what we call your antenatal like your initial screening screening test. So it's checking for things like past illnesses, past immunity levels to things like um, rubella and measles and um, uh, blah, blah, blah. mind blank pregnancy. <laughs> like months? No, not iron, SCDs. Yeah, I know, but now I'm, oh, chicken pox. That's the word I'm thinking <laughs> of. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly what Liz just said as well. Vitamin D, iron levels, a full blood count, your blood group, hep B, sometimes hep C, different STDs, a whole heap of different bloods just to see baseline where you're at at the start of that pregnancy. And along with that as well, they'll offer you what's called a dating scan or a dating ultrasound scan. And this is a scan that they do around the eight-week mark of pregnancy. And it's just to really just confirm that there is a little bubba in there with a heartbeat and then they'll take a measurement and that is where a lot of the time they'll get what's known as your estimated due date. Something on that, if you are someone that is certain of when you conceived, so you know exactly when it happened, you don't need that to know your estimated due date. Or if you're someone that has a really regular menstrual cycle, we can calculate that date based off the first day of your last period. So if you're aware of that as well, this is not a scan that you need, but a lot of women do opt to have it because it's reassuring to see what's going on in there. 
Um, another thing we've estimated due dates as well is it is just a guess. So even when you get that magical date given to you, <laughs> don't, don't hold on to it too tightly because it is just a guess and you could go weeks either side of that date. So yeah. really, this is just a guesstimation. Um, after you, um, sorry to interrupt, um, but what's the stats of women who actually go on their due date? Oh my gosh, I you've put me on the spot. I think it's it's not it's le it's definitely less than ten percent, yeah. way less than ten percent. <laughs> I don't know the exact stat off the top of my head, but I I want to say six percent. Wow, four percent, okay. but I, that's that's a guess. But it's definitely yeah. under ten percent. Yeah. yeah. The whole yeah. um, whole phrase of due month is so much nicer than due date. Totally. I've myself, when people have been asking when I'm due, I'll just say the month. Yeah. I'll just say, that's, that's the month I'm due. I'll just be like, at the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to know. It's <laughs> great. Um, the next test that you'll be offered by that point is... Um, this is a this is a definitely an optional one because it's quite an expensive test and this is a newer test so it's only come out kind of in the last five to ten years I would say and we here in Australia they might call it something different overseas is the NIPT or the non-invasive prenatal testing and that's a blood test that you can have done that checks for different chromosomal abnormalities for your baby. So namely things like um, Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome, Patau syndrome, and a few other sort of sex chromosome um, conditions as well. And this is also the blood test where you can find out if you're having a boy or a girl, baby. Um, this test is pretty accurate. It's up to 99% accurate for certain conditions. So it is one that lots of parents are opting to do at the moment, but again, not one you have to do. If you're opting not to have that one, because it is anywhere between sort of three and $500, that's, that's a really expensive test. If you're not opting to have that one, um, we've still got what we offer to all women and have for a while, something called the nuchal translucency scan, your NT scan or your 12 week scan. And that's another ultrasound where they take certain measurements on the baby and they'll take into consideration a certain blood test that they do with you then at that time as well and your age. And they give you sort of like a risk category. So they'll say you're at a higher risk of having a baby with Down syndrome, for example, or you're in a low risk category. So it doesn't give you like a definite yes or no but it gives you like, you're very, you're very unlikely for this to occur with your baby, um, but it's not quite as accurate as that NIPT testing. So it's kind of up to, you know, women and their families and their partners as to what they decide they want to do in that space. But they're, they're the general tests that we offer in the first trimester and your GP will be going through those with you. Okay. And when does a woman have her first appointment with her midwife and what does this usually entail? Yeah, so it depends. If she's going through, we'll assume she's going through the public system just in one of the clinics or if she's going through MGP. Um, generally speaking, that could be anywhere between about 14 weeks and maybe 18 weeks. And COVID has kind of thrown that around a little bit as well um, with lots of it going on to Zoom and things being delayed, but usually between 14 and 18 weeks. And with that first appointment, 
we like to call it your booking in visit or your booking in history because what it is, it's a big hour, hour and a half long appointment where we just sit down with you and we go through all of your medical history, all of like your social history, mental health history, um, previous pregnancies, what you're hoping for out of your pregnancy and just trying to pick out anything that we think might need to be looked into further while also figuring out whether or not your pregnancy at that stage is considered like a higher risk pregnancy or a low risk pregnancy or like a medium level risk pregnancy and what option of care might work best for you in that space. So that they may, depending on whereabouts you're at, they may have a listen to your baby's heartbeat, they might check your blood pressure. But if you're on the earlier end, it literally might just be you sitting there answering a heap of questions um, and then going on your way after that. And then how frequently do you check in with, say if you're going down the route of a midwife, how frequently yeah. do they ask you to check in? Or the same with an obstetrician if you're doing the private. Yeah, I think with an obstetrician, it's probably going to really depend on the particular obstetrician. They all have slightly different ways of doing things. But generally speaking, um, for any pregnant woman and family, they, um, they'll check in with you every four weeks. So once a month for the first one or two trimesters and then as you're approaching your third trimester they'll start seeing you every two weeks and then as you get further towards the end of your pregnancy so maybe 36 weeks onwards roughly they'll start seeing you every week up until you have your baby yeah okay so um we wanted to talk about colostrum mm. And we wanted to ask if you could please explain what it means to collect colostrum, how is it done, and when is it safe to start doing so? Yeah, so colostrum is the first milk that our body produces, and we start producing that in pregnancy anywhere between sort of 12 and 14 weeks onwards. That doesn't necessarily mean if we squeeze our breasts at that time that we're going to see anything, but our body is starting to produce it. Now, when it comes to collecting colostrum while you're pregnant, this is kind of like, again, a new thing that women are starting to do, that healthcare professionals are starting to talk about. It's, it's something just before we go into how to do it or why you might want to do it, just take it with a pinch of salt because not all women necessarily should be doing this or need to be doing this I think there's this message out there that's like okay let's all do it but we have to think about okay like why why are we doing this so the why a lot of the time it's it started with women that had gestational diabetes that's the kind of group that we were recommending it to because those babies that are born to women that have gestational diabetes particularly if her blood sugar levels haven't been particularly well controlled during pregnancy. Um, the baby is at a higher risk of dropping their blood sugar levels when they're born, which is really common and nothing to stress about. But if women already had some colostrum there to give them an extra boost, that was really helpful in that space. Now, that advice is kind of filtered out to all women some of the reasons women might want to do it is, and I think these are really good reasons, if they know for whatever reason that they are going to be separated from their baby, so they know that their baby might be going to the special care nursery or to the NICU for a while, having a little backup stash to send with them can be really helpful. If they know that they've had breastfeeding issues in the past, sometimes it's a nice 
um, I guess, safety blanket to have some extra there. Again, if they have gestational diabetes can be helpful. And some women just like to have it as like a reassurance factor of like, oh, we've got some extra there. The important thing to note is when you begin breastfeeding your baby, you don't want to accidentally replace any of those breastfeeds with the colostrum feeds that you've got there. It's always ideal that the baby goes to the breast and feeds when they want to because the more the baby feeds, the better your milk is stimulated and your supply is regulated based off how much your baby's fed. So that's sort of just like a little disclaimer that we don't want to replace breastfeeds with these express milk feeds. Um, but there are some of the reasons that you might want to. You can start safely, officially, and expressing in pregnancy from about 36, 37 weeks onwards. And the reason that we suggest waiting till that point is there's some concern, but it's not really necessarily founded on evidence, um, some concern that if you stimulate your breast too much, it can release oxytocin, which it does. And oxytocin not only helps milk to release, but it also causes your uterus to contract. So we just don't want women accidentally going into preterm labor because they're expressing. It is very, 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 very unlikely that that would happen, but just as a safety measure, we usually say don't start doing it till 36, 37 weeks. Um, it's hard to explain how to do it without having a visual. <laughs> so I would recommend looking up um, I might actually, I'll try and give you guys a, a link to a, a good video on YouTube of how to do it. Yeah. So if women are listening, they can go and actually look at it because okay. it's about massaging the breast, not just squeezing your nipples. Yeah. Um, and then usually you just want to have some kind of clean and sterilized container. So a lot of people get given syringes in the hospital. If they're going for a hospital birth, you can collect it in the syringes and store it in the freezer for up to three months. Um, so you collect it in your syringes. You might have a clean and sterilized container that you're expressing into. You can buy those little reusable ones now if you're wanting to consider the environment a little bit. You can try that. Um, but another important thing to note is that not all women are going to get any colostrum out when they try to do this. And that does not mean that they're not going to be able to breastfeed. Okay. Yeah. So they shouldn't be worried. No, no, I definitely wouldn't get hung up on that. I was actually, it's so funny that you asked, I was listening to a podcast about this a few days ago mm. and there was a study that came out, I can't remember the year, um, definitely within the last 10 years called the DAME study that was done in Australia looking at antenatal expressing and they found that up to 25% of women were unable to get any colostrum out even when expressing from 36 weeks onwards twice a day they weren't able to get anything out and this didn't this wasn't necessarily indicative of what their breastfeeding journey was going to be like so I guess that's a big sort of message that I want to get out there that that alone is not a reason to be concerned about your supply or your ability to breastfeed and I've looked after so many women where I've gone in to help them within the first day or two and they're like, I have no milk. I tried during pregnancy. There's nothing there. And, you know, you'll help them express there just to give them some reassurance. And they're like, oh, oh, my gosh, I have it there. Uh, that's so good to hear. Yeah. 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 That, that in and of its, Yeah, totally. Like that in and of itself is not a reason to be concerned about whether or not you're going to produce milk or not. Okay. Mm. 
So let's jump into labour now. Uh, mm-hmm. What are the signs, Em, that a mother is going into labour? Is it always the big gush of her waters breaking like we see in the movies? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Sometimes it is. I don't want to say that never happens, but more often than not, a woman's waters will break once she's in labour or even towards the end of labour when the baby's being born or some babies are born what's called in call where the waters haven't broken and they're born in that bag of waters which is very very rare but very cool um so usually the the signs that labour might be starting is contractions that's your biggest indicator that you're going into labour and literally what that is that is your uterus tightening and contracting and this differs from like Braxton Hicks contractions or like these little practice ones that you might be having throughout your pregnancy. When you start going into labor, those tightenings of your tummy are definitely getting more painful, more uncomfortable. They might start feeling like a really bad period like pain. They might start worse than that. They might start less than that as a bit of a backache. But those contractions will then start forming a little bit of a pattern. So they'll be coming more regularly rather than your random Braxton Hicks here and there. Mm -hmm. So when I say regularly, that could be every five minutes. That could be every 10 minutes. It could be like coming, like I don't want to get hung up on the clock because particularly in those earlier labor phases, you might be getting them every five minutes and then they space out to every 10 minutes and then you get one at 15 minutes and then it comes back again to five and they can be really sporadic, but they're coming regularly-ish And then as labor begins to progress, and that can take 12 hours, that could take 24 hours, it can take a couple of days, um, those contractions get closer together, they become more painful, stronger, um, and they're lasting a longer time as well. Some things that women might experience going into labor if they aren't quite sure, a lot of women will have diarrhea as like before they go into labor lots of women report having loose stools um some women as well might vomit and that's really common as well and this isn't something that happens with all women um some women might have increased vaginal discharge as well so it might look a little bit like a piece of snot or bloody snot or like this globby kind of jelly-like stuff and that is your mucus plug. We call it your mucus plug. It's disgusting. <laughs> and that's pretty much literally this plug that has been sitting in your cervix, helping to keep that environment safe for your baby. So as that early labor phase kind of begins, your cervix starts to change and then that mucus plug starts to come away. But again, not something to get hung up on. Some women don't notice that until right at the end when they're about to have their baby. So they're just a few little things you can look out for. And, and is that different to your bloody show? Yeah. 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 Your bloody, like, yes and no. Uh, it, I think they're used interchangeably depending on what care provider you, you ask. Okay. You can definitely have, like, a bloody type show discharge at the beginning of labour or even a little, like, you can start losing your mucus plug well before you go into labour as mm-hmm. well towards the end of your pregnancy. So I wouldn't necessarily refer to that as your bloody show. The bloody show from when I, where I've worked, we tend to refer to it as when you're getting very close to being fully dilated and you have this sort of bloody show, bloody discharge. 
as your cervix reaches full dilation and you're ready to have your baby. So it's a bit confusing. And is a bloody show, does it have mucus, does there cervical mucus in it? Yeah, it's mixed in with some, yeah, yeah. It's it's not just fresh blood as if you've like cut yourself. It is yeah. definitely like a sticky mucusy consistency. Okay. So, Em, what are your recommendations for a woman to prepare her body for the most efficient labour? I think that's a really interesting question because I'm kind of of the belief that women's bodies are kind of built to do this and made to do this. And I do think that we focus too hard sometimes on like preparing our bodies <laughs> and like getting I'm it into ready. the optimal state. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of takes away from a woman's confidence right from the get-go in her ability to do this. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Like, yeah, I just think if we're saying you need to go and like see a physio and see this and do this and do this and make sure you're stretching and make sure you're doing this, then that's sort of like subliminally telling a woman like your body's actually not quite ready for this. Like your, your body can't do this yet because you haven't prepared, which is not the case. There are obviously certain things you can be doing. Like if you, you know, if you're having really bad pelvic pain or you know you have an over or an underactive pelvic floor, go and see a physio. I'm seeing a physio at the moment for that, which is amazing. Um, go and see, like I see you, Georgia, in the clinic. Um, but I would say I think it's more important to be preparing your mindset in that regard rather than physically preparing your body if you know what I mean mm -hmm. obviously take care of yourself during your pregnancy but don't get too hung up on doing all the right things in that regard because the evidence shows us that a woman's headspace when she is laboring is like the key contributing factor to what her labor and birth is going to look like because Labor is driven by our hormones. And what is something that really impacts our hormones? It's our headspace, it's our stress levels, it's how safe we're feeling. So I think working on your mindset is way, 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 way more important than focusing on, okay, physically, like what can I do to get ready? What positions should I be sitting in during pregnancy? Like what, like, should I be forward leaning? Should I be mm -hmm. making sure I don't cross my legs? Should I make, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's true, isn't it? It's true. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we do labor preparation in the in the treatment rooms, in the clinic, um, it's, it's part of that, you know, we're preparing the body as well as the mind and just like preconception, totally. you know, when you make space for a baby, you were wanting to help that mother make space for coming into labor as well over that next four to five weeks. Yeah, like, totally. Five, six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I know, Georgia, when we chatted on my podcast a few weeks back, that yeah. was something we spoke about, like with the labor prep. It's mm. not so much being like, we're going to, you know, make your body magically do all this stuff. It is like preparing, helping, you know, prepare your cervix a little bit and whatnot. And there are physical sides to it, but so much of it is like relaxing and allowing, not like obviously your headspace to relax, but allowing your body to relax as well. Still yeah. process. And it's that yeah. physical and mental capacity to be able to mm. go, I've got this. I'm prepared. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So, and do you have any recommendations about ways that a partner and a woman can educate themselves for labour preparation? Yeah. yeah, look, there are a heap of different birth courses available, which I think are amazing. And it's just about finding the one that fits best for you. So just having a read, asking some friends that have similar values to you in regards to birth, 
um, if they have any recommendations. So there's not one in particular that I would say definitely go and do because there are lots of really good courses available. So I think gaining a better understanding of as the woman what your body is actually doing in that space like what what is happening within your body when you're in labor why are you feeling this pain what is the purpose of it what is it actually doing and then going through some of those mental strategies to help cope as well as some physical coping strategies as well so like that might be like I said, going to a birth course, it might be consuming certain content. So if you find a podcast or an Instagram account of someone qualified, I would say, try and try and find someone that is legit, um, but that resonates with you in that way that is instilling confidence in you, but then also providing some, I guess, physical tools as well of how to cope with it. I think that's the best way to prepare. And this is a big question, Em, so just preparing for this one. Um, (laughs) How can a woman learn to navigate intervention options? What type of questions should she be asking to feel informed and also her birth partner to feel informed before making a choice? Yeah, that's such a big one, but it's an important question because I think the majority of women will be met at some point in their pregnancy with a conversation about some type of intervention the biggest one probably being induction we're seeing heaps of women the majority of our first-time mothers are being offered inductions for whatever reason I think trying to trying to understand where your values lie first and foremost. So what is something that you value in that birth space? Are you hoping for a completely what we call physiological, so almost like untouched birth experience where you're just allowing your body to do what it, what it does? Are you hoping for a physiological birth? Are you just, is your mentality, um, I just want a safe baby at the end of this and that's all I care about and I don't care how I get to it are you someone that values scheduling and you want to know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen so just figuring out where your values lie first and foremost before heading into those discussions can help and then what I would say is asking lots of questions and not feeling stupid because your questions aren't stupid. And if your care provider is making you feel stupid, then that's on them. That's not on you. So if you don't understand something, ask them, ask them, what are the benefits of this? What are the risks involved? So they might be saying for you, for example, to you, for example, we think your baby's really big and we think we should induce you because, you know, I don't know, we, don't, we might have what's called a shoulder dystocia where the baby's shoulder gets impacted behind your pelvic bone. That might be what they're concerned about. You might be concerned about, okay, I really want to have a what's called a normal vaginal birth, which I don't really like the term normal because, you know, but a, a, a vaginal birth without instruments. You might be thinking, okay, is that going to impact whether or not I have like a vacuum birth or a forceps birth? So asking them, okay, that's, that's your understanding of me having a big baby. What, what are the risks involved with that procedure? Like, is that going to increase my risk of this, this, this? Mm-hmm. As well as if your doctor or your midwife are giving you certain statistics, if they're saying this doubles your risk of having whatever or this increases your risk, that's quite vague language. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is ask for specifics. So say like, okay, you're saying double. 
what is the risk if I don't go forward with this intervention? So these are just made up numbers, just for an example, but they might say, if you don't have this induction, you are double the risk of having a shoulder dystocia, for example, or whatever. Awesome. Okay, what what are the what are the actual numbers around that? So that might be going from a one in one thousand risk to a two in one thousand risk, or a zero point one percent chance to a zero point two percent chance, and then reframing that again into thinking, okay, if I do go forward with this intervention, I have a ninety nine point nine percent chance of not having a shoulder dystocia. Whereas if I don't go forward with this intervention, my chance is less to not have a shoulder dystocia, but it's still 99.8% chance. Like mm-hmm. asking them to reframe that information for you rather than just using language like increase risk, double the chance. Like saying, can you give me the actual numbers? Can you reframe that? Like what are my chances of that not happening with those numbers that you're giving me? Because I think, and I don't think care providers mean to do it a lot of the time, but a lot of care providers are going to come with their own biases and their own personal preferences and what they think is right, of course. And that kind of guides the way that they frame the information that they're giving you. So just asking for that information to be reframed, I think, is really helpful. And then the second thing, sorry, I know I'm going on a lot, but the second thing I think is (laughs) really important is that more often than not, like 99% of the time, you have time on your side. You can say, okay, we're going to go, like me and my partner or me and my support person are going to go away and we're going to think about it and then we'll come back and see you again. And a lot of the time you don't need to make that decision on the spot or you can make a decision and then you can change your mind. You can go home and have a think about it, have a chat to whoever you need to chat to, um, ask for a second opinion. You're well within your rights to ask for a second opinion or to speak to someone else if you're not feeling like you're getting the information that you need or you're feeling like you're being coerced into making a decision, ask to speak to someone else as well. Yeah, that's really helpful, Em. Yeah. Yeah. It can get quite overwhelming quite quickly. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then on from that, Em, what are your recommendations for the most important thing that a woman and a couple should put in their birth preferences or their birth ideas? I think it's going to be dependent on the couple, really. But just having a think about, again, what's important to you in that space. Like, are you someone that is comfortable having lots of people in your space? Or do you want, like, I don't know, say you're being cared for by a midwife. Are you comfortable with doctors coming in and out of the space? If you're not putting that in your preferences saying, can the midwife speak to the doctors first before they come into my space and viewing that birth space, wherever you are, whether you're at home, whether you're in the hospital as your space. And then I think what's important as well is yes, you're obviously going to have these preferences. So you might be like, I want to have a normal vaginal birth with no intervention and I'm going to have minimal pain relief. And that's awesome but also having a few options of, okay, if something does happen, if I am separated from my baby, if I do have to go to theatre for a cesarean section, thinking about what are some things I can put in place to still make that a positive experience for me. So if I can't have immediate skin to skin with my baby, I want my partner to, or I just spoke to um, a really incredible woman who had a cesarean section after um, an induction and pretty much the birth that she'd 
wanted and expected. It didn't quite go to plan and she had an emergency cesarean. But within that space, she said, okay, I want to do skin to skin and breast crawl with my baby. So allowing her baby to just sit there and crawl up to her breast in that baby's own time. And that was something she found really empowering in that space. So just thinking of little things along the way. And it's not about expecting the worst. It's just knowing that things can come up and things sometimes don't go to plan and just yeah, trying to think of ways that you can still make that um, still feel in control and still make that a positive experience, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on birth preferences, Em, but for a woman and her birth partner, why should they consider birth preferences over a birth plan? Yeah, well, exactly what I said, just because yeah. birth is unpredictable and I have to be careful with how I say it, but most women are birthing in hospitals. I think it's only like 0.4% or something of women, like less than 1% of women are having home births at this stage. And hospitals can be quite intervention heavy a lot of the time. So knowing that like you can go forward with the best of intentions and things can sometimes come up and be thrown out, like things that are out of your control a lot of the time. Like you might be, you know, laboring along and everything's fine and maybe your baby's heart rate drops down a little bit or your blood pressure goes up or whatever, things that you weren't expecting to happen. So I think it's important to plan in a sense for those things and have preferences like we would prefer this to happen however if something does come up we're happy for this 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 but we're still not happy for this 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 yes you know what I mean yeah and then discussing that yeah exactly have options Hmm. and discussing that yeah yeah totally totally yeah as well yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and so, and what are the different kinds of methods to induce labor? And could you please briefly explain them for us? Okay, I'll try to be super brief because I know we're on the clock. <laughs> but there, um, I guess when we think induction of labor, most of our minds will go towards that, you know, classic, you go into hospital and you're induced and then you have your baby and they're like your medical options of induction one quick one I'll touch on before we go to that is something known as a stretch and sweep and that is by a lot of people not considered a form of induction because it's offered to heaps of women from like 38 weeks onwards in their pregnancy so casually Hmm. so casually and I know from a, a healthcare provider point of view that's something that's depending on where you work but can be very strongly encouraged for you as a care provider to be offering to women and offering is, you know, I use that loosely because it can be like, okay, well this week we're going to do a stretch and sweep. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's oh, are we? Okay. Yeah. So just knowing if you are offered a stretch and sweep and I'll explain in a minute what that is, is if, if even if it's framed in a way of like, okay, we're going to do a stretch and sweep. You need to give consent for that. Well, you don't need to. You cannot give consent for that. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, it's up to you. You are within your rights to say, okay, like, what, what is it for? Like, what's the benefit to this? Da, da, da. And then you're allowed to go, no, I don't want that. Mm. And if they do that without your consent, that's abuse. That's a form of abuse and that needs to be escalated. Um, but a stretch and sweep really is when your care provider, so your midwife, 
for your doctor, they'll insert two fingers into your vagina and they locate your cervix. And to be able to actually properly do what's known as a stretch and sweep or a strip and stretch um, is they need to be able to fit at least one finger into your cervix. To do the stretching aspect, ideally they need to be able to fit two mm -hmm. because what they're trying to do is stretch your cervix open a little bit and that's not to manually open your cervix to be like okay I've opened it the baby's ready to come out it's to stimulate the release of certain hormones that can potentially help prepare your cervix for labor so that's the stretching part the stripping part or the sweeping aspect of a stretch and sweep is where they'll pop their finger into your cervix again and that will go in all the way up inside the inside of your uterus. And what they're trying to do is sweep their finger around between the wall of your uterus and the bag of waters that your baby is sitting in. And again, the hopes are that it's going to stimulate the release of these hormones that potentially are going to help prepare your cervix and maybe stimulate labor. Now, the important thing to note with that is that if your body isn't ready to go into labor on its own, this is not going to work. Mm -hmm. It might cause a bit of cramping and discomfort and a little bit of bleeding, but it's not going to send you into labor. And if it does help kickstart labor, the chances are that your body was about to do it anyway. And we've just kind of like nudged it. With the potential risk of infection, Em? Yeah, yeah. Any vaginal examination increases the risk of infection for sure because you're introducing something into that space that, you know, obviously your care provider is going to wash their hands. They're going to be wearing sterile gloves, but yeah, any kind of procedure where you're inserting something into a body part increases the risk of infection for sure. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest things that, you know, women report after that is like that discomfort, that cramping sensation. Some women even experience like they'll get home and they'll be like having these sort of contractions or mini contractions all night and then by the next day they're gone mm. and so they've had this huge sleepless night for what purpose you know what I mean yeah. I think they have a time and place for sure but I think probably we we shouldn't be offering them routinely because again I think it's just telling women that their bodies can't do this and we need to do this for you you know what I mean and yeah. how have we survived all this time as a human race Without a stretch. Exactly. So that's like. Yeah. And I guess it's one of those things, and like, you know, does stretch, like, does a stretch and sweep have its place as maybe a first point of intervention post full term? You know, is, is there a place for it? But yes, you know, as you said, is it actually. Is it actually that it was a stretch and sweep that, that was successful, or was it actually that that woman was ready to go into labor? Yeah, absolutely. Like there might be a woman that is booked in for an induction for whatever reason. She might be booked in the next day and she might go, okay, I'm just going to see if a stretch and sweep does this for me before we go down that way. And I'm like, great, like go for it, give it a crack. But I just, I think so many women are being offered it because, and I, I totally sympathize by the end of their pregnancy, they're over it. They're like, I just want this baby out. They're fearful of being offered a medical induction. Yeah. They're like, okay, let's just do all these stretch and sweeps to get the baby out. So I don't need to worry about that. Mm. But are we actually really considering what that means as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
The next question is a very important one that we're quite passionate about, Em. Um, we often see so much focus on labour, but how can a mother prepare for postpartum and how are health practitioners failing our women in this period of their lives? Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's such a big question. I think, I think uh, firstly, like as healthcare practitioners, I think we're failing women because we're not focusing on it enough, exactly what you said. We're, we focus so hard on like the pregnancy and the birth and having a healthy baby. And then it's like once all that kicked off it's kind of like okay we've achieved what we want to achieve but a woman is then left in that space you know what I mean Mm. and that's the that's the period of time like technically speaking postpartum is six weeks but really you're in that postpartum space for for life you know you've got that baby for life now a child for life so yeah I think there's not a strong enough focus on it because we're just we're too distracted by everything else in the lead up and also just resource wise like Mm. I I just don't think like in regards to like a public health sense it's just not a section of care that is prioritized as much as those other you know other facets of pregnancy and labor and birth um what was the other part of the question how can people prepare how can what yeah how how can a mother realistically prepare for postpartum yeah I think it's really hard because I don't think anyone is ever going to be totally prepared for Mm. it. Like I even, you know, I've spoken to a lot of my friends that are midwives who have had children and they could, they knew, you know, all the information under the sun and they're still (laughs) like, holy moly, that really shocked me. Because, you know, you've got things like however you're feeling physically after the birth, whether you've had a vaginal birth or a cesarean section, you're recovering physically in that sense. You're probably very sleep deprived, not only from your birth experience, but you've now got this little human that has their day and night mixed up and you're not getting much sleep. So I think that side of things is hard to prepare for, but maybe being a little bit realistic with certain expectations. So what, just from a baby point of view, to start with what might your baby be acting like so being aware that if you choose to breastfeed your baby's going to want to breastfeed a lot and it's going to happen a lot at night time and that's really normal and it sucks and it's so hard but knowing that okay that's normal knowing what to expect from your body in a sense as well like again if you're breastfeeding what are some of the changes you might be experiencing in your breast Um, knowing that you can bleed for up to six weeks it can be uncomfortable and I just, I guess, like, again, getting your mindset ready. So looking into, okay, what is this potentially going to look like for me? But then in a physical sense as well, I think taking it easy is so important. And it sounds so basic, but really like putting things in place before mm-hmm. you have your baby to try to make that postpartum space um as easy as possible I suppose where you are able to rest and when I say rest it doesn't mean you're going to sleep a lot I don't want to be like just sleep you know sleep when the baby sleeps because that doesn't happen a lot of the time yeah but I don't know if you've got kids already trying to have people teed up if you've got support people around you saying do you mind taking them once or twice a week or having like a meal service set up ready to go preparing meals having them in the freezer having friends and family lined up to like don't be afraid to 
ask people to help because people want to help a lot of the time. Just thinking like, okay, how, how can I make, how can I take away some of my usual responsibilities so other people can be doing that while I just focus on myself first and foremost, taking care of my mental health and taking care of my body, allowing my body to rest and to heal and to transition because your hormones are just going all over the place. And then within taking care of yourself, how, how can I then better take care of my baby because I'm caring for myself better? And I know that sounds really simplistic and basic and we could do like a whole episode just on postpartum care, but I think there's some starting points. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's great because it doesn't yeah. overcomplicate it for women. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And to finish off today, Em, what mm. would be your top tip for new mothers as they transition into motherhood? Gosh, that's such a good one. <laughs> <Just> one. <laughs> uh, I just think it sounds so fluffy. Like it sounds like such a fluffy answer, but truly like, please just go easy on yourself. Honestly, I feel like particularly with social media, there's all these, you know, expectations, this bounce back mentality or like we as women in today's day and age, we're just, it's amazing how much we can do, but we're expected that we can do everything all at once. We can be like the breadwinner. We can be the mother. We can like, you know, we can be the boss. We can be the housekeeper as well. And yeah, there's just so many expectations that are unspoken that are, you know, that in our subconscious we're placing on ourselves. And so I think trying to just go easy on yourself in that space and allowing you to just surrender to that postpartum period as best you can and just being in that moment and and not feeling like crap, like not being like, oh, my gosh, the kitchen's so messy. Like the amount of women that I visit at home and they go, I'm so sorry, the place is a mess. And I'm like, okay, I don't care. You've just had a baby. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Just like releasing yourself from all of those other expectations and just being like, yeah, wow, I just had a baby. I just grew this human and I birthed them. However that happened. I'm amazing. My, my, I'm not getting any sleep. I'm taking, I'm, I'm making sure this little person survives. Like that is massive. What you're doing is massive. And so just having some grace for yourself. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, most definitely. That was great. Thanks. And thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Em. And it I will, loved it. Oh, good. Yeah. We'll put all of those links and your Instagram handle in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and review. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. This podcast is intended as generalized health information only and was relevant at the time of recording. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or as a substitute for treatment from a medically trained practitioner. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences,